Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the What the Niche podcast. As always, I am your humble host, Andrew Morris. Now, before we head into the conversational rabbit hole, if you will, I want to update everyone about a couple quick things. This week, I will officially launch my digital store for the podcast, which will offer some stickers, buttons, t-shirts, and custom-made hats. All of those things can be found at whatthenitch.net. I also officially launched my bonus material for subscribers on my Patreon. If you haven't chosen to donate in order to support the podcast, I totally understand. There are a ton of things in life that pull at our pocketbooks. But if you can afford to give a little something, I now have several incentives. Anyone who donates $5 a month will be given access to two bonus episodes every month, and they'll also be sent an awesome swag bag. And anyone who donates 25 bucks a month will also get a swag bag, access to the bonus episodes, and they will also receive a custom What the Niche t-shirt. And finally, anyone who donates $50 will get the previous listed items along with a leather-branded custom What the Niche hat. You can find my Patreon page via patreon.com forward slash whatthenitch or by clicking the donate button on my website, which is whatthenitch.net. Finally, as always, thanks to everyone who continues to listen. I love and appreciate all of you for your continued support. And now, it's on to the episode. language. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Now see that look in Mr. Pitt's eye, like 19th century literature has nothing to do with going to business school or medical school, right? Maybe. Mr. Hopkins, you may agree with them thinking, yes, we should simply study our Mr. Pritchard and learn our rhyme and meter and go quietly about the business of achieving other ambitions. A little secret for you. Huddle up. Huddle up! We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, O me, O life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O me, O life? Answer, that you are here. That life exists and identity. That the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. That the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? Today's niche is one that's near and dear to me for we will be discussing teaching. I remember sitting in my classroom the day before my first official day as a teacher. I was anxious. I was curious. I was excited. 
I was terrified. I was elated. And I also remember how I felt at the end of my first day as a teacher. I was also anxious. I was curious. I was still excited. I was still terrified. And I was also elated. Over the years, I've had many jobs, including working at an amusement park, cashier at a grocery store, cook in a fast food restaurant, cooper, which meant I made whiskey barrels, and car salesman. Many of those jobs requiring lots of training, and they took plenty of time to learn. But none of them took four years to learn. Teaching requires years of preparation as you make your way through college to get an education degree. And despite having the most intensive training for my newfound profession, when the door to my classroom closed on that first day, I never felt so unprepared in all my life. And I learned very quickly what teaching was not. It was not what the books told me. It was not completely what my professors told me either. It was not easy. It was not one size fits all. It was not standing on a desk and having every student engaged. How dare you lie to me, Robin Williams. It was not at all what I expected. However, it was so much more than I could have ever imagined. As I made my way through each day, I was presented with the many things that teaching actually is. It is the student who peeks in your classroom every morning just to see how you're doing. It is the moment you see a student finally grasp something you taught them. It is the handmade birthday card a student gave you which hangs on the wall behind your desk. It's the smile on your students' faces when they enter your classroom. It is the eyes of every student focused on you as you finally have that Robin Williams moment. It is the group of students draping garland and placing ornaments on your classroom Christmas tree. It is the class performing a play and shattering all expectations you ever had for them. It is the brilliant artist in your class whose work is posted on your bulletin board. It is too many things to list. And as I was presented with all these things that teaching is, eventually my fear and anxiety dwindled and I was able to simply enjoy all the things that teaching can be. And we know why kids drop out. We know why kids don't learn. It's either poverty, low attendance, negative peer influences. We know why. But one of the things that we never discuss or we rarely discuss is the value and importance of human connection. Relationships. James Comer says that no significant learning can occur without a significant relationship. George Washington Carver says all learning is understanding relationships. Everyone in this room has been affected by a teacher or an adult. For years, I have watched people teach. I have looked at the best and I've looked at some of the worst. A colleague said to me one time, they don't pay me to like the kids. They pay me to teach a lesson. The kids should learn it. I should teach it. They should learn it. Case closed. Well, I said to her, you know, kids don't learn from people they don't like. <laughs> she said, that's just a bunch of hooey. And I said to her, well, your year is going to be long and arduous, dear. <laughs> Needless to say, it was. Some people think that you can either 
have it in you to build a relationship or you don't. I think Stephen Covey had the right idea. He said you ought to just throw in a few simple things, like seeking first to understand as opposed to being understood. Simple things like apologizing. You ever thought about that? Tell a kid you're sorry, they're in shock. <laughs> I taught a lesson once on ratios. I'm not real good with math, but I was working on it. <laughs> and I got back and looked at that teacher edition. I taught the whole lesson wrong. <laughs> so I came back to class the next day and I said, look guys, I need to apologize. I taught the whole lesson wrong. I'm so sorry. I said, that's okay, Ms. Pearson, you were so excited. We just let you go. As Ms. Pearson so wonderfully stated in this clip, teaching is about the relationships. It is not having power over a group of students. It is not reading from a 20-year-old textbook. It is understanding your kids and allowing them to be a part of their own learning. It is trying to adapt with the world in order to relate to their individual interests. And this brings me to my delightful guest today. His name is Jonathan Jeffries. He is a father, husband, history extraordinaire, and educator. We discuss the terrifying feeling of that first day, our lives before education, and what felt like a thousand other things we encounter as educators. John is the epitome of what it means to be a fantastic teacher, and he's a damn fine human to boot. I hope you enjoy this conversation between two passionate educators and great friends. Hi, yes. Uh, so my name's John. I am uh, currently a 7th and 8th grade teacher. Um, so that's middle school for those of you who aren't familiar with grade levels, which if you're not, um, I'm in my class. Anyway, middle school is the, um, the challenge, I think, of secondary education because all the time I'm going to college to become a teacher, I'm like, I would never teach middle school. Like, those, those, yeah, those kids are crazy. Like, why? <laughs> and then um, you realize that... Um, you need a job and you're going to take whatever's available and you're like, yeah, I'll teach it. We'll go to high school after that or something. And then you just love those kids. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I teach uh, in the Indianapolis metropolitan area of Indiana, not necessarily in the Indianapolis school systems, but that's the closest comforting, comfortable area I would mention. Um, but I've taught there for a couple of years. Um, I'm on, going into my uh, third year of teaching there, and um, I've been loving it. Like I said, I thought about leaving the middle school, um, just using it as a stepping ground to go into the high school, but I've really come to find both my services needed in seventh and eighth grade, as well as really enjoying it. Um, it it's, an, it's an awkward blend of young naivety versus wanting to prove themselves as more than that. Um, and it's, it's an exciting ride to get the kids from that seventh grade beginning of a child who's still child adolescence, but then coming to the eighth grade of that self-discovery and wanting to be a part 
of something more. Um, and that's not everybody, that's broadly speaking. But that's a loaded answer, I think, into your introductory <laughs> question. But there we go. Sorry. You're diving right in, buddy. I love it. That's yeah, phenomenal. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so you and I know each other from being uh, students at IUS. We are also mm-hmm. realized upon uh, an epiphany that we came upon upon one of our first um, visits to a school to do some observational work, uh, we were sitting at a table and realized we practically know all the same people. Um, (laughs) So I think that put me and you into an interesting situation to where we always felt, I felt a comfort level with you that probably uh, superseded comfort, uh, normal comfort with normal people just because I'm like, Oh, he knows so-and-so and and he knows so-and-so. So so he's good (laughs) peeps. So like you were like in by association and so I always, always loved our relationship just because I could kind of come up to you, even though we'd had like four conversations and just get deep with you. And, um, so that's why I really wanted to have you on here and, uh, you're already jumping deep and and I love that (laughs) just in your introduction. I love that. Um, well, that brings to mind a, a question I actually hadn't thought about. But as an educator, and, and, and I know I have my, my own feelings about this, uh, considering we shared a college experience, very literally, we had the same teachers and things of that nature. <laughs> Do you feel as though that the current system as how it's set up really prepared you? The current system as in the collegiate yes. preparedness for educators. Okay. Um, ooh. Yes and no. Um, I'm going to say... You hear that, Dr. Losey? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, that's why I'm like, I'm going to say yes, because we did have some awesome professors. We, we did indeed. Um, and, and some really good ones. And then, of course, you've got ones that were not as great or not as influential, not as inspiring. And go ahead um, and name them. <laughs> right. No, 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 no. no. Uh, that's, that's fine. But um, I would say yes in the sense that... Um, I knew what to expect from, say, content matter. Um, and, and part of that is the individual going through the collegiate process obviously chooses their content because of their connection with that content. So I teach history in seventh and eighth grade. And obviously, I have a strong connection with history. I love it. it it's super fun for me. It's just stories. And so taking that and learning how to teach that certainly prepared me for it. But, and I think the other side of that is no, because there are some things that college can't prepare you for. College can't prepare you for the kid who, um, can I, okay, so the, is there a language restriction upon this? Because I'm going to quote some things. Uh, that's saying no, no. <laughs> okay, okay. So <laughs> college doesn't prepare you for the kid who tells you, I hope you die of cancer, you faggot. Like, college doesn't prepare you how to handle that, um, which I had a student say those exact words to me. Um, college doesn't prepare you for how to react to the student who comes to you every day during lunch because they can't sit at a table with friends because they don't have it. Um, and they'd rather come to your lunchroom and talk to you. And like college doesn't pray for that. And so one side of that is it, it's all you and your personal emotional strengths, how you can handle that kid who calls you a faggot and tells you, I hope he died of cancer. Like, how do you not go, 
expletive, expletive, get out of my room, angriness at the kid. Or you can just go, well, you know, a lot of people do die of cancer and uh, it does run in my family. So I do have some chance of that. And if I do come to that, I hope it's at least a painless and quick process and not like that's <laughs> I'd like to say I handled it as nonchalantly as that, but it was more of a, you need to go to the office type thing. So ask me to leave my room. Um, the college isn't prepared for that kind of stuff at all. Um, it, it does on paper where I remember we specifically did an exercise where we pretended to be the bad kids in class mm. during college. Yeah. And, but it, it's such a, a play. It's such, we know you're not that kid. Mm. But then when you have that 12, 13 year old kid who has such a horrible home life and that he attacks you like that, no college didn't prepare for me that uh, prepare me for that at all. But it certainly did with how to teach the content, just not how to reach the kids emotionally somewhat. I will say we had one professor who was really, really, really good. And I'll quote him um, with, again, without giving his name. He always would say, it's the relationship student. And that always struck with me because if I can build that positive relationship with the student, if the student knows I care, I can eliminate about half of the problems from behavior. So yes and no, college prepares you for the content, but not necessarily for the uh, discipline, the emotion, and not to mention administration um, dealings. But, uh, yeah. 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 I think that that's <laughs> a really good point. I've, I've encountered uh, similar things in uh, I'm a passionate person. I'm passionate when I speak. Uh, I'm an actor. So things, I could be theatrical, but um, there's a fine line between passion and uh, easy, being easily angered because my passion yeah. runs, runs deep and I'm really big on respect. Um, so when a kid um, gets out of line in a situation, you know, I tell my students I love them. I, I never really like once I've established that relationship uh, and I'm like, I love you guys. I hope you guys have a great weekend, you know, because they need to hear that. They need that positive relationship because a lot of times that's the only time that they're going to get that. Um, sure. So when a student gets out of line and disrespects me uh, in certain ways, college did not prepare me for how to handle that because that scripted situation that you talked about I don't care about that person in that story. Not legitimately. I pretend, no. you know, but when I do really care, it's like the arguments you have with your wife, uh, whomever it may be, or your better half. Those are some of the worst arguments because they care more about you than anybody else. And you care more about them than anybody else. And they can hurt you. And your students do get that power eventually too, which sucks. And yeah. they're teenagers. So they know how to choke and prod you in such a way that they know to trigger you. They're like, oh, yeah, that was that one time. <laughs> I'm going to do that. And college doesn't prepare you for that. College doesn't prepare you to refrain from saying the things you want to say or refrain from being um, what I call the Jekyll and Hyde effect. As a teacher, I know college did not prepare me for the fact that I'm going to have to, because a, a classroom is a battle of control in a way. If you demonstrate weakness to the class by letting a student say something to you that's ridiculous, like what they said to you, without any sort of consequence, you're doomed. So yeah. you've got to handle that with equal force, 
while also being a professional. So you have to be like, you know, say whatever thing you're going to say. Uh, you cannot speak to an adult that way. It's time for you to go, whatever it might be. So you have to handle in that situation and you kind of get heated. And as yeah. a teacher, a lot of times uh, you don't get a chance to step away and cool down. So you got to be the jack on high. You got to literally be that person who is raising their voice. Get out of my classroom. I'm not playing games with you. I don't know who you think you're talking to out and then turn back to the class and go, now class, uh, we were actually talking about, uh, <laughs> and it's that Jack one. The weirdest part. feeling. The weirdest feeling. It's so strange. You feel insane. Yes, yes you really do. So, and, and that's so true. You, you hit it right on the head there. Yeah. <laughs> so nothing prepares you for that. Yeah, I agree. No. And the many hats that we have to wear, that was something that I wasn't um, prepared to do is either, you know, because I have a, a, a degree in secondary English education. I do not have a degree in counseling. I don't have a, a degree in psychology. Uh, I don't have a degree in behavior management. Yet, 65% of what I do is behavior management. So, trying to figure out how to work your way through those minefields uh, while also doing the thing that you signed up to do because you love it, which is the actual teaching of the, uh, the course that you chose to, to get a degree in, whether that be English or math or history as you do. And it's, it's difficult to, you know, sort of navigate through all those things. And then you talked about administration. Um, <laughs> there's sometimes we're people. You can't possibly get along with every person that you meet. Uh, and you're going to run into some administrators that do not mesh well with your personality. Uh, and that's tough. And those are things that are, are difficult. And for me, one of the greatest things was when that door shut on that first day of class. And it was my classroom. And it was just me and that first class of students. There was a slight panic that, that <laughs> kind of washed over me a little bit. I'm like, oh, shit. It's just me and them. <laughs> like, like yep. I control this whole situation now. This is crazy. Do they know? You're like looking out in the hallway. <laughs> Y'all know I'm in here by myself? This is crazy. So, That's so true. <laughs> yeah. but, but the other side of that, of that panic is also the they don't know me like you mentioned about acting and, mm. and entertaining. Like that, there's also this, this moment of like, I can totally be this tough dictator. Um, or I could be the cool guy. Just going to chill back <laughs> yeah. here. I'll lean against my desk. What's up guys. Welcome to class. Like, yeah, we're going to have a fun time. Or it could be like, sit down. These are the rules. And they don't, they don't know. They don't know you yet. So you can set it wherever you want it. Um, and I've learned you set it high at the beginning. Yep. Like, and I don't mean like scare them straight right then and there. You sitting in this desk, a kid died in this desk because I chewed his face <laughs> off. Like, I don't know, not that extreme. But like, Please tell me you, that's <laughs> what you did. I, right. I wanna... <laughs> no, not yet. Uh, but you started high. Like, look, I get to teach about democracy and democratic ideas. And I love to incorporate that into the, the classroom culture. Your voice should be heard. Part of teaching um, social studies is uh, action, taking action, teaching kids how to take action, how they can be um, productive in, in society. And I want that to start in my class. And so I want them to have a voice. I want them to be heard. But you've got to show them 
I'm the benevolent dictator. I can be the benevolence. I can be, hey, let's have you speak. Let's hear your voice. You're right. You know what? We should uh, change that to this. And then the other times you can be like, no, absolutely not. You don't get a vote in this. This is what I say. It's the law. And it's tough because they're kids. I mean, they're, I'm, I'm looking at 13, 14-year-olds, and I watch a lot of cartoons. And one I always think of is Bob's Burgers. And I always think of they're all little Tina's. Like, I have all these little Tinas in my class, and not to pop culture social reference here, but yeah. How dare you act like a, a normal human? <laughs> You're a teacher. That's not what we are. How that's dare. right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And it's funny that you um, took something that one of our professors used to ingrain in our heads was the benevolent di- dictatorship. You yeah. know, it's, I, and it, I found exactly what you said to be true is I, I come on really really hard at the beginning of the year. I'm like, I don't do late work. Late work is for babies. We're no longer there. <laughs> You're on your way to adulthood because I'm in a high school. And yeah. I think that, and I'll, I'll say this in an open public forum, cause I'm not scared to tell anybody in my district this. Um, I think we coddle too much. Uh, and I think that we're doing a major disservice to a lot of people, uh, not just students, people in the world in general. Um, but I tell my students, I'm like, I share them with, I share with them experiences I had in college. I'm like, if you do something late because you weren't here, is your college professor going to care that it's late for whatever reason? No, they're going to, they're going to give you the late credit if they even accept late work and not care. And it's not that a college professor doesn't care. It's just that they don't have time to. Uh, because right. they have so much to do. Uh, they have five other classes or four other classes, and they have 10-page papers for every class, and there's 30 kids in each class. So they are not going to care about your sob story. I have kids that will come in and write what, absent. They'll have a, a weekly sheet that they're supposed to do. They'll miss one day, and they'll come in and write absent. And I put a big red X right next to that absent and put responsible for all work missed. Because... Yeah. That is what life is. Is your boss going to care if you have a job that there was something that you were supposed to do when you were gone? Who's going to do it while you're gone if that's your job? Guess what? That job's going to be whatever you had to do. It's going to be waiting for you when you get back. So they need those real-world consequences, and I feel like we're not doing that. Um, And I understand, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of times empathy gets convoluted with coddling. I think I think they, they I, disassociate I the two. And I'm hoping it's something that we can fix. And I don't think any parent that's out there listening is going to listen to this and disagree with me um, because they, it is a fine line. And, and my kids, like I said, they know I love them. They do. I tell them. I don't, I don't let a moment go by. If I have a sub, I write it on the board. Love you guys. Hope you guys <laughs> are doing well with the sub, you know, because um, I, I forget the book. Uh, there's, there's a book on education, uh, Love and Logic. And it talks about leading with that, you know, rather than being confrontational. And I try not to be that because, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's draining. You struggle. Yeah. Uh, the kids can be difficult. And sometimes it's easy to get combative. You're like, why didn't you do that? Like, you know, and we don't know that uh, last night um, their cousin overdosed and they, they came to school because it was the only comfortable thing they knew. And, there's so many things going on outside of the classroom that we can't know. 
So you do try to be um, as thoughtful about that stuff as you possibly can be. But we are people and we have our momentary lapses. Um, it's true. So and it's tough with them because you're also dealing with it. Like you mentioned about like you're doing your job and if you're not there, no one's going to do it. That's absolutely true. And in this circumstance and teaching, you also then have the parent. So then you're dealing with dear student, your work is late. Where is it? Dear student, email number two, where is your work? All of a sudden there's an email from the parent. I'm not, was not made aware that my uh, son or daughter's email or work was not there. Dear parent, I've written to your student, uh, child many times, work is incomplete, work is not there, where is it? Could you please talk to them? I don't have time to do this from the parent, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you have two mediators here that you have to deal with. And it's tough because the parent wants the kid to be responsible, but then at the same time, sometimes it doesn't want the teacher to give them more work. And it's an odd situation to be placed in. And sometimes it works out beautifully. And other times you end up getting the principal involved because you're being yelled at a uh, perfect example. I once got an email from a parent that said, uh, dear teacher, um, confused why my daughter came home from school today and you said that the U.S. military is a terrorist organization. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I never said that. Um, so the only thing I could think that would happen is that I was talking about the Revolutionary War and how the, the army, the Continental Army, did use terroristic measures and tactics to fight against the British. Small hit and run, um, a war of attrition, going after cargo, uh, attacking civilians. These are tactics used by terrorists. And so I did mention that. And then and I get that email about me calling the U.S. Army terrorists. And I was like, whoa, okay, let's, let's slow this down. I know that's unrelated to the whole mediating between missing work story, but it just popped in my head and you were talking about it. It's a pretty funny story. Um, but that, that worked out really well. Um, that parent actually came to visit my class uh, to see um, what I was doing. And it was a really interesting situation where I had to go. I could create, since I know she's coming, I could create a really dull, dry, safe, boring lesson. Or I could have the most crazy, student-involved, chaotic lesson that I could manage. So I had a, a um, town hall meeting. <laughs> in my class with my student uh, to, to show the tea party, like right before they went to the tea party during the revolution, before the revolution. Um, and she came and observed that and it was nuts, but she loved it. And she was like, I love how you get the students involved and engaged. It turned out from this scary parent email to an, a really positive experience that I won a parent's trust and, and it was great. That's fantastic. If, if all the interactions could go that way. Um, yes, they could. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how students perceive some of the things that you tell them. Uh, I had a student um, in my class. I work at a school that's uh, predominantly students of color. Uh, I work on the equity committee there, uh, the equity and diversity uh, committee. And so I know a lot of the numbers there. So we have 67% students of color. And we had a student who was wearing a Confederate flag shirt 
and had the Confederate flag case on his phone. And I had approached him. He was wearing a hoodie. And I told him, I was like, "Um, you should probably zip up your hoodie. And he was like, why is that? And I was like, well, I'm trying to protect you. He's like, well, you don't believe in freedom of speech and my right to do and say what I want. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. But I also want to protect you. And I was like, I think that maybe you're too young to maybe be familiar with the situation that you're in. Um, (laughs) So he saw it as me, you know, stepping outside and, and to his defense, he probably, you know, he grows up and this isn't to get into debate about that, but understanding your environment. You know, I, yeah. you certainly are in an environment that you could upset a lot of people. So let your flag fly. That's fine. But understand the outcomes and the consequences of what those actions might be. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting, the perceptions that you have with your kids there. Um, For sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I know you, this should be interesting because you teach middle school. So there's probably even more so uh, some things that are associated with you than, than myself. What are some common misconceptions that you deal with uh, for things that people think about teachers and associate with teachers that you've encountered that maybe you'd like to clarify for people? (laughs) Yeah, well, um, so education is a profession that's highly polarized in this country, especially. And I hate it because it has taken on this political Force and people attack educators simply for being educators because of this association that educators have with one specific political side. Um, and it's not true. Um, like the, the misconceptions will be things like, oh, teachers are part time workers. Um, you know, they get their summers off, uh, they get their weekends off, so they shouldn't complain about pay, they shouldn't complain about these things because they're only part-time employees. And that drives me insane because I'm an educator. My wife is also an educator and she teaches math. And when I, when I see her come home from work, well, we both come home from, from work. We actually teach at the same school, um, which is super fun. But anyway, we come home and we cook dinner and then it's right back into work, working, grading papers, um, creating lessons. And it's so infuriating to be attacked by the public when we work so hard to better at the public by growing the people who are going into the public, like we, we don't work our job to make the bare, or to do the bare minimum for these students because then they would hate school. They would hate math. They would hate history. And we don't go into the profession to perpetuate students who hate that content. We go into this field to, to grow students, to change this, this mindset of history is boring, that math is dull. So we change it and we work really hard and spend a lot of our own non-paid individual time and money sometimes to find fun and cool, entertaining ways to change that student perspective. And yet we're still hit with this idea by the public that we don't, that we get, we go home and we do whatever we want for the rest of the day, or we have the weekends off for the summer. We don't do whatever we want, not attend um, different seminars and attend different um, education things. We have to, to get points towards our license or to renew things um, or just build curriculum. And I don't know a single teacher 
not a single teacher who only just teaches. And what I mean by that is they just have like one thing they have to do. Um, you mentioned wearing all the different hats of counselor, psychologist and things like that. But it's also like you got a coach or you advise a club or you maybe some of them work other jobs. I know a teacher who also waits tables or um, I know some teachers who um, will do DoorDash or um, a couple other things just to get supplemental income because going to school, paying for a college bachelor degree, which is the equivalent of, you know, a, a becoming a registered nurse or um, anything that's, that's worthy of a four-year college degree, and we still make less. And I realized that that's up to the districts and it's up to the states about what the, a teacher's pay should be, but it certainly should reflect if capitalism is this idea that you do the work, you get the pay. Well, <laughs> teachers do so much of it. And I would argue so much more than what they're asked to do, at least what they thought they signed on to do when they chose to become a teacher. And we don't really see any of that. But most of us don't really complain about it. I don't, I don't go on social media and complain about a lot of it because I, I, get, I do get something out of it, not the finances I need to pay for my bills and my student loans, but I do get time with kids to help grow their hearts and their minds, um, to get them involved in things, out of things like um, gangs or drugs or something like that. If they're at school with me after school um, in a sport or if they're at school with me in a club or in band, then I know they're doing something positive and enriching. And that's a great feeling. But at the same time, if I tried to argue something, say, the military, if that guy chose to go in the military, knowing he's going to be paid less, and I'm like, oh, but he's getting paid in the sentiment of, of keeping our country safe. And he's getting paid in the knowledge of knowing that um, he's making a difference in the world. Or yes, I'm, that's absolutely something that person's getting in. But I would say that most people would be like, they deserve pay raise, or they deserve something more for what they're doing. And it's even more so polarizing now with the fact that teachers are now being literally placed on a front line where we have these worries of, of someone coming in and, and shooting our kids and us. And that's not, and there's no pay uh, for that. I mean, if a cop dies in the field of duty, the police officer's funeral is at least taken care of. And if a teacher dies in, in the field of duty, that's not something that's included. So, and I'm not attacking police officers, certainly, and I'm not attacking the military by any means. They're highly respectable, very needed professions, and I, I'm so thankful for them. But I think that any type of service-based job, be it nursing, uh, military service, anything that, that serves the community, shouldn't be something on the mouths of the public that's attacked. Don't attack nurses. Don't attack police officers. Don't attack teachers. Now, if there's blatant evidence of people doing something wrong, sure, use the proper channels. But at the same time, why tear it down? Why belittle educators? Why attack them as part-time workers? Why attack them as babysitters or nannies? When they're the people that you're entrusting 
your most precious, precious, excuse me, um, task with for the majority of the day. And then you're going to take your kid home and be like, oh, those educators are whiny people who just want more money so they can only work small amounts of days and reap all the benefits from them. And that's just not true. So that whole misnomer of part-time workers or nannies and babysitters, we're not that. And you know that. And I would argue a lot of people know that. But it always seems to be something that's put on media or put on the channels that people listen to. And it's infuriating, especially when it's like everything I do, I do for the better of my state, my city, and my country. And yet you constantly attack me. Right. It's, it's a simple, yeah. it's as simple as a math equation. Uh, I posed it to my students when they, they want to argue with me about putting their last name on a paper, uh, which is <laughs> such, such a simple thing. And I'm like, well, listen, you're, you're in the grade book by your last name. If you only want to write one of them, write your last name. I don't care what your first name is. Cause it's not what it is in the grade book on <laughs> your you paper go. anyway, but it comes down to a math equation. So say you assign four assignments a week. Okay, that might be on the light end. For some people, that might be on the heavy end. But I'd say that's maybe immediate. Four assignments a week. You spend one minute. One. I have 150 students. That equates to two and a half hours of me grading per assignment. And I have four. So you, you do the math on that. I'm looking at seven to nine hours a week of grading. And that's if I only spend a minute. Uh, it's impossible for me to do that on things that are uh, assessments, things like tests and quizzes that require me to look at uh, things just a little bit more thoroughly rather than like a check-in piece uh, for basic understanding where it's like a five-question thing, things that we might do during the week as a daily assignment. Quizzes, essays, uh, on an essay, you might spend five to seven minutes per assignment. You do that math. So... If you figure we're doing that every week, then you, you add the fact that for every student interaction that you have that's negative, for every referral that you write on a kid that's acting out in a class uh, or not following expectations, you are supposed to contact the parent yourself. At least for us, we are. So mm -hmm. I'm supposed to either call or email the parent, document said contact of parent in whatever program that the school is using. Uh, so that there is a documentation and a paper trail that we've made contact with that parent. How long does that take? Uh, if I write the referral, that's a minute or two. Uh, that contact with the parent, depending on the parent, I've gotten parents on the yeah. phone that I've been on the phone for 10 or 15 minutes. Um, you add in that time. How many times a week are you doing that? You know. Uh, then if you have students that are um, educational special needs, ECE students, um, you have documentation and paperwork that's required by federal law uh, for you to document uh, that those kids are getting certain needs fulfilled. Uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting specific here, but for people to understand the layman's outside of education, these individuals with these special needs have to have documentation that they're getting the things that they're supposed to get every week. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, but I'm giving it to you by the numbers because people want to talk about, well, I don't really care how you feel. Well, that's great. I'm giving you the numbers. So if I'm doing that, I have in my class personally about 20 kids that are, that are EC, ECE. So I do those documents per week. It might take me three to five minutes per, per kid of documenting that for every day. 
So you do the math on that. That's another 20 kids, three to five minutes. I've added over another hour of time there. I've added an hour of conversations with parents, and I've added about nine to 10 hours a week, at least for grading work. Then you talk about lesson planning. Uh, So we have to plan what we're going to do for the day. We can't just show up right before class and have it done. So our day might consist of a seven-hour day, but we have to have that done ahead of time so that we know what we're doing. How long does that take? For a good engaging lesson, I don't know, John, you tell me. Some of my lessons have taken me seven, eight hours. Yeah, for sure. And, and you constantly change them. Like you, you, do your, you create the lesson, you apply it to in real world time in your classroom, and you realize, well, that was terrible. Like that didn't work <laughs> at all. And then you got to go, okay, I'm going to throw out all of that, um, yep. and now I got to find something else. And so, yep. boom, it's gone. And you do that three or four times. So yeah, it takes hours and hours. And I know seasoned teachers who have been teaching, you know, decades and have some pretty solid lessons that the kids look forward to every year. And they still have to change things because it's not just about the, the uh, there was another professor we had in college who would say, you don't teach history. You don't teach English. You don't teach math. You, you teach to the students. You teach students. You don't teach the content. You teach the kids. Um, and that's true. I can have a solid lesson, but my kids change every year. Mm-hmm. Sometimes more than once in a year, um, new kids, um, transfers, whatever. So you've got to change it to apply to them because a kid especially in education, if you can't connect what you're teaching to their real world, they won't remember. So if I'm teaching a history lesson about um, George Washington um, crossing the Delaware in the cold of night, like I try to to be like, how many of you ever been, um, you know, started off, like how many have been swimming? Like, oh, he loves swimming right now. How many of you ever seen the polar plunge? I'm like, that's some cold water right? Like you would not forget swimming in that frigid water. Um, and then we'll talk about crossing the Delaware as frozen blocks of ice in pitch black. You couldn't even use torches um, to surprise the Hessians and try to connect some type of physical feeling or some type of emotion or something from their own real world to connect that thought to. And at least with history, I have it slightly, I think I have it slightly easier because most kids have some kind of enjoyment of stories um and so i get to just talk about cool stories that people have done in history and connect it with them in a way although (laughs) i can't tell you how many times i'll teach a whole lesson about like um uh, what was it we were talking about so one specific historical figure and the one thing the kids remember is that having a gap in your teeth was a sign of beauty and i'm like whoa 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 that was like a little blurb I mentioned in there as kind of a joke. And that's the only thing you remembered, not all the other stuff that's testable material. Right. That. <laughs> um, or that, you know, um, Taft got stuck in the tub. Like, great. I'm glad you remember that Taft got stuck in the tub. That's awesome. But let's talk about what he did as a president and right. things he actually uh, tried to achieve rather than getting a bigger tub. But that's still fun. And they remember that. And I always throw in dad jokes and things like that to try to help them remember things or uh, songs or something. Um, but we change everything 
all the time for the kids, especially music. If you're going to throw music in history, we talk about like music has been used to tell stories. Music has been used to lead movements. And so when we can use the music, but kids are like, oh, this is like old people music. Like this mm. is grandpa music. And so then you're like, okay, I'm going to try to find some other new thing where they've like done a hip hop version of it or like an electronic version of it. And believe it or not, they're out there because um, uh, what was the flow vocabulary is a great like they have all kinds of like hip hop R&B songs about like different historical things that have happened. And it's great because they connect more to that music than they will of an old folk song. Yeah. Because it's not teaching what I think is cool, even though it is, but I want them to remember it. So I've got to connect it with them. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's some aspect that I probably had never really thought about framed that way. In a way, we have to be um, a contemporary guru that's constantly changing. <laughs> I like that. Because like that. we have to stay on the pulse of, of what's going on. Uh, you know, like I listen to Juice World and I listen to Little Baby and I listen to G Herbo and I listen to uh, my kids would be so proud of me right now. Uh, so these are things that like I've learned about. I didn't know who Billie Eilish was until my kids played oh my it. Gosh. I, I didn't yeah. know who she, yeah, two years ago, my kids <laughs> shared it in class and I'm like, I actually kind of like that. That's creepy. Yeah, and, that's not bad. She's kind of cool. All her songs are so different though. Yeah. And yeah. so we have to learn from them as much as they learn from us so that we can relate to them. Uh, and I like that you talked about changing the framing of a lesson. Um, you know, I feel like I have some lessons that are money. You know, I taught the kids about Bohemian Rhapsody last year. Um, and I did a, an entire lesson. I used segments of the film um, to teach them about rock and the elements of rock music. We talked them. Uh, we taught them about uh, polyharmonics and things of that and mono, uh, mono harmonics and, it was really cool and the kids really got it, but I had to utilize other things that they were familiar with because not all of them were sold on queen. Now we'll say right. this, it made me really Stop proud. It. I had like 60 students come to me and said, Mr. Morris, I added queen to my playlist. I love that. And I'm like, all right, dude, cool, man. That's um, awesome. But yeah, I would have framed it different this year. I would have picked a song that was more relatable and popular now because two years ago, that song's ancient now. Oh, you owe, yeah. you know, things that I think are relevant. I'm like, I like Kanye West. They're like, Kanye West sucks. And I'm like, yeah, who, I thought, that? I'm like, I thought he was cool though. Childish Gambino, <laughs> this is America. And they're like, right. man, uh, every teacher thinks they're cool because they talk about that song. And I was like, well, that song's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> And not to mention the the memes or like the little things like the, the hydro flasks and um, I don't know if they did that at your school, but like little things, someone would drop one in the hallway, everybody would, uh, and I oop and all this stuff and like every little pop culture thing that's the flavor of the week. And then in like a month, no kid makes the joke anymore. No kid says it in the hall. And it's honestly, I love it. Like it's one of those things that I get back from them, like just to watch the social interaction of the middle school mind and the, the, the puberty of just like um, going through all these emotions. Cause part of it is like, you, you forget, well, you shouldn't forget. And I, I don't, I try really hard not to. These are people, right? Like they're, they're little human beings that you're teaching. They're you 
when you were them, if that makes any sense. Mm. And you want, and, and you could see all of you like, man, I remember when I dropped my books in the hallway and no one picked them up. And you're like, oh, that kid helped them out. And his <laughs> books were like, you remember like um, spilling yogurt on your shirt and lunch and having to deal with it the rest of your day of the day. Or you were that kid that did something embarrassing. And you're like, you see that and you're like, what can I do to help to, to reach this kid? Or you get so happy, so excited when you see another kid step in with that kid or help that kid. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is so great. Like I'm seeing it in real time. This is awesome. Like it's just such a spark of, of happiness for the future because you see it and it's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's so... So interesting that, like, I guess you could call it a constant personality dump uh, when they're that yeah. age. Like, whereas who you were six months ago is not who you are now. Your vernacular yeah. has changed because it's all this um, self-discovery that's going on at that age because they have no sense of who they are. There's no sense of self True. for a while. You know, and as adults, yeah. most teachers are of adult age. I mean, even if you're 23, 24, you're starting to get some semblance of who you are. And if you're a teacher, probably more so than anybody, if you've already graduated college, you put in some work so that, you know, you've established yourself into something um, and sure. they don't have any of that. And I think that goes back to something we talked about earlier. Another thing college doesn't prepare you for the apathy. Oh, yes. Um, that was something Absolutely. that I wasn't prepared for at all was that how many of the kids got so much going on in their lives that they don't care about anything. Yeah. And there's nothing that, that I'm going to be able to do, give them a you, write them a referral, none of that. That's yeah, really going to help. And so You're absolutely right. That is a big thing because I can deal. A kid says, I hope you die of cancer, you faggot. Like, I can deal with that. I know the proper chance. All right, dude, office, you're, you're getting um, uh, in-school suspension. Um, we're going to talk about this. But what do you do when they just refuse to care? It's so hard because you're like, look, dude, I, I get it. You, you, don't, you don't care right now about this. I know you've got stuff going on. But at the same time, all these little things add up to your future. And throwing it away, you're going to have to claw your way out of this. And it's so hard and you don't want to see them go through that. And so it's that apathy. You're absolutely right. It's extremely, it's probably, I would argue the hardest thing is like I said, I can handle angry behavior, throwing a chair or calling names, but how do you break through the wall of a kid who's completely built them around him and he just doesn't care? Yeah, because the anger, that's an outward signal that they want help. Yes. You know, they're, they're acting out because that's the only way they know to get attention. So they're saying to you, please help me uh, or please pay attention to me. I'm here. Yeah. Ah, this is the thing that I'm doing. And, and the kid that's just like, yeah, I don't, they don't disrupt. They sit there at their desk. They stare off. They don't write anything down. And you're like, what can, what can I do with this? And what do you like, man? Right. It's like what can I, what can we do to get you involved? Yeah, and they don't get they still don't give you anything. You do no. your interest surveys to start the year, and yeah. they leave that blank, and you have nothing to work with. And I think it goes back to like there's things like for me being such an extroverted person, and 
being relatively positive and it, it's hard for me to understand the notion of sheer and absolute hopelessness. Yeah. That's hard for me. No, I, we talked about it. We talked about yeah, sure. we got our certificate for like the one or two classes that um, we took for suicide awareness suicide and stuff awareness, like that. Yeah. yeah. And it was mentioned of what hopelessness is. And then that's uh, um, one of these, the demonstrations or the signs of depression, of suicidal tendencies. But actually having that in your midst, uh, in your classroom, when it's what you do in that situation could be considered maybe you didn't do enough. Yeah. And that's a hard, those are the things that the, the key the teacher up at night too. Like, I mean, you go home and you, you think about that kid, like what, like I think about kids, especially now with, you know, e-learning being a big thing and teaching from home. I think about those kids who, when they came to school, that was their escape. Like that was their outlet. That was their, like, sure, they thought their classes might have been kind of boring, but they get out there with their friends, they're out of their house, like, they're socially interacting. That's the highlight of their day. Mm -hmm. And now they're at home. And, I mean, I don't know what their home issues could be, but on the, the worst end of it, their awful um, home lives with, with either not their parents or very negatively their parents. I don't that's obviously the extreme, but I, I hate that they're removed from that. Like I want them in, in, in my school. I want them in my classroom. I want them in that seat so I can see them so that they know I see you. I'm happy you're here. I'm happy. Even if you're struggling with any, anything, you're here and you're a part of my life. And I'm super happy for that. And I can't, I, you lose that, this e-learning. And it's so hard. And I've made videos for my kids and I'm, I'm super silly with them because uh, like I'm, Another thing we did learn in college is you choose a um, like a class, like the bit in a nerdy way, like you're the the warlock, the ranger, the wizard, or whatever. And I, I'm the entertainer. Like I entertain my kids. Like I get up there, and I tell jokes, and I tell stories, and um, and it's so hard to do that from a video because I can't see them. Like I can, I just see me in my video. When I want to see their faces, I want to see their eyes, I want to see them so they know they're seen. And that I'm so happy that they're there. You're like a stand-up comic. It doesn't work yeah. without an audience. Um, no. There's no way you you have that push and pull. And, and you know, I, I fit very much in that same category that you talked about. I very much consider myself the entertainer, and it lends itself really well. I teach humanities, so you know, I'm teaching the kids about plays, right. and you know, I'm yeah. teaching the kids about music, and, and we do a whole unit on film. Uh, they really like that. We did that as an e lesson. They got to pick a movie and break down the movie based upon the elements of film that I gave them. And uh, that went really, really well, but you're right. Like, it's really difficult uh, in this this form uh, exclusively. Now, I think there. I'm hoping that out of all this, that the positive comes that we uh, understand how to utilize technology uh, in a yeah. in a in a much better. Uh, we use it to facilitate education. Um, because it's a great tool, uh, and I think some kids, as you're probably seeing as well, um, some kids do better this way, and sure. I think that's great too. But things like the arts have to be experienced. Yeah, um, I had the kids do plays. They put on individual plays in the class. I'm like, 
And you're going to participate in some way. You're going to be a director, a costume designer, a set designer. You're going to do something. I understand not everybody wants to talk. Not everybody is, oh, look at me, you know, but getting them all involved and it really went really well. Um, and yeah, I can't, uh, there's ways to manipulate some of these assignments to work yeah. in a digital form, but I still feel like we're settling on a lot of this stuff, yeah, absolutely. Which, is, which is fine. We're making the best of what we for got. Short term. Yeah. Yeah. For short term. Absolutely. So I, I mean, Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, um, it, it, it's even harder when you're that teacher, and you're also the parent. So, like, mm. I have to create these lessons that can engage in some way that, but also aren't too complicated where they have to go to their parent every five minutes. Mom, I don't know what this is. Dad, I don't know <laughs> what he's talking about here. And it's like, okay, so I got to think about this because I see my son and my daughter, and when they come to me, and I'm like, oh, I don't know. I haven't done math in years. Like, I mean. <laughs> Practically, yes, but not in the, the academic way. And so they're like, how do you do this? I'm like, oh, gosh, come on. Like, they should make a video to help you explain, help explain this so you know how to do it, because I don't. Um, so I have to think about lessons that aren't too much for the kid, because I know the parent, I, I mean, I want the parent involved, sure, but not in the sense where the parent feels like they're the teacher. And I've heard a lot of that from people during all of this. And uh, I don't want that, because I feel like, especially where I live, when we started e-learning, it, it was very positive at the beginning. Like, um, we love you teachers. It's great. And, um, and I understand the longer it goes on, people start to get stir crazy and upset and wanting to get back to normal. But there's certainly a lot less positive. Now it's gone from more like we love our teachers for what they do for kids and more of a man, I hate being a teacher. Can they please, can you please take them back kind of thing? Like from the parent and, um, and I completely understand because I'm in both shoes of that right now. I'm, I'm the parent and the teacher. And it is frustrating, but uh, I do feel a sense of loss in the public eye of that for the teacher. So my whole thing from this is like what you mentioned, I, I hope we can use what we've learned from this experience to grow our lessons and our um, engagement with students like the flipped classroom, like instead of coming to school one day, we flip it. You read the materials at home so that when you come into the classroom, instead of wasting time on um, the materials, we're going to have a Socratic seminar. So the kids, instead of spending a day in the classroom reading the materials and then coming in the next day for the seminar where they discuss it, they read it at home and they come to the classroom and they discuss it, um, which is, you know, very college level type thing. Um, and I try to do Socratic seminars as often as I can um, in mine uh, because the kids do really well with them. Props it's to you, man. That they, they have a voice <laughs> and it's being heard. And I mean, I see it almost like as a big book club. And I try to facilitate as much as I can. I'll throw up a couple questions on the projector and, and then they'll take it. I'm like, don't look at me. Don't talk to me. You guys are talking to each other. Um, and they do fairly well with it. And Socratic seminars in the seventh and eighth grade level can be difficult because these are kids who aren't used to speaking out as much. Um, but I try to cultivate that classroom culture where they, they can. So most of my seminars are towards the end of the year because now they know how to respond, how we argue with each other in a civil and proper way without throwing desks or chairs. Um, 
And so it goes really well. And I hope that we can take what we've learned from this e-learning process and apply it to that in the coming years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I found thus far as uh, the few episodes that I have done, uh, a great way to end uh, the conversations is for everybody to share some inspiration uh, and I haven't done it with every single conversation. Some of them have lent themselves to other things, but I think it would be great to hear from you. Um, some of the things that inspired, uh, maybe not necessarily even a person, maybe some actions that occurred in your life, as I shared with myself, the passing of my father led to me uh, doing some soul searching and, and changing careers. So what did that look like for you? And, and I know that you're somewhat of a non-traditional student like me, where you went, you joined the field a little later in life. So what things transpired for you to pursue education? Well, that's, that's a really good question and um, certainly a long one. <laughs> um, it, it's one of those things where your background, we talked about how kids don't know who they are yet in self-discovery, especially in the middle school ages. But that even goes on to graduating of high school. By, by 18 years old, I have some idea as to who I am and certainly who I want to become. But it's constantly changing and evolving based on the situations and certainly the people in my life at that time. Um, I mean, there was what my parents, you know, as, as a parent, um, I, I raised my children based off of some idea of what I want for them and I want them to have and want them to be successful with. And so growing up, I knew that my parents had that for me and I wanted to, to be that. And it's tough because you're dealing with that and then what you want for yourself and what you um, want to be. And then every person and every situation that surrounds you constantly influencing that from day to day. And so it changes a lot. And at 18, I mean, at 18, I was halfway moved to New York um, in love with um, a fashion designer or a girl going to school to be a fashion designer. And um, that, if I would have stayed on that path, completely different. Um, but education specifically has been ingrained in my family and therefore my own personal experiences and my own personal um, situations since I can remember. My mom has been um, in education forever, and she teaches um, with the hearing impaired. And so that's always been something in, in my mind and something I'd have to go to her school and do all these things. And so that exposure, that experience has always been there. And then um, my grandfather, he uh, taught at a university. And then we spend so much time in a classroom that you can't help but feel some type of connection, some type of pull to that. And especially the influencers, your teachers, what they teach you, they influence you positive or negatively. So there's such a strong connection to education in my own personal life there. But when you're 18, I was like, let's take all of that, throw it out the window, I'm going to go do music. And so it's like, yeah, uh, I'm just going to explore on my own. But that's huge. You need that. You need that self-exploration. You need that journey. Because through that, you take everything that you thought you didn't need that you were prepared and given with from your personal experiences growing up, and then you apply it to what you've learned on your own, and through that, you, you make you. And that's when I decided I'm going to be an educator, because 
I, I love being in the classroom. I love cultivating future citizens, especially those that are um, socially aware and empathetic. Um, and in, in social studies and history, that's so great because you have that opportunity to have these conversations that are so, what's the word I want to use? Taboo sometimes, like um, abortion or political parties or marriage equality or all these things that are hot topic items. And you find that these kids, even at 12 and 13 years old, have an opinion. And that's awesome. And they should be able to express the opinion. And then using their opinion, you uh, give them more facts and more stories and more bases of things, not to persuade them to one side or the other, but to either grow what they have or to challenge what they know. And that those challenges especially help you grow. Because if you can't take the challenge and apply it to yourself, and whether you succeed the challenge and grow in what you already knew or the challenge changes you and makes you more towards something that you thought you were against. Either way, that's what being a human being is all about. And so being a part of that in education, being, a, be, being the facilitator has been one of the most dynamic experiences to feel. And I guess it's partly like you said, I'm a non-traditional student, and that's absolutely true in the sense that I'm a late bloomer there, especially when I became a father. Like, I want to help facilitate the passage of a mind through this experience and not to control it at all, but to, to help it. Like, my, my son, if you, if you know me, I'm, and my students know this very, very well, I'm awful at sports. Um, like the whole idea of sportsing is just like foreign to me. Like my kids will be like, oh, did you watch the game last night? And I'm like, curling? Like what are, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like what, what, what sports event? Um, they're like, oh, so-and-so. And I'm like, what? And so that's completely foreign to me. Um, and so my son, I don't push him into this, don't do sports, son. Like do this only. No, I cultivate what he wants to do. So he can experience as much as he can and use those experiences to make his decisions later in life. And having that, that feeling and that positivity has really made me want to be a teacher. And it's easy, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, to sit here and look back and see all the things that really pushed you towards it, being my mom, being my grandfather, and then even seeing the, the, the woman I, I fall in love with who becomes my wife who's that same thing. She's this powerful educator. She's amazing. Like she's, she's way better teacher than me. Um, that's saying something I get. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but <laughs> like I see that and I want to be a part of it. And it's hard not to want to be a part of it. And that's partly why I think it hurts so much when you, like, as I mentioned earlier about when you hear public um, attacks and things like that. I'm like, if you came in my classroom, if you came in, and sat and experienced what we do every day, would you still feel that way? And I want to change. I think that's a big thing about education and part of why I went into it is I want to be a part of change. I want to be a part of growth. I want to be a part of seeing students connect their world to the world of academia, to the world of history, to the world of, of something that, that grows them and challenges them. And it's it's an amazing thing to see and witness, and I absolutely love it. And I 
so thankful every day that I go to my classroom and all the little things that might tear me down of attacks, um, verbal abuses from students or um, the public opinions. But at the same time, it's amazing like to be a part of that. And I, I wouldn't, I'm happy that I did choose that because I, I could have gone to New York and pursued um, music and photography and the arts. But now I can take all of that and in some way connect them with my students. I connect musically with them. I connect artistically with them. And I can use that in my entertaining of my lessons. And it, it works really well. Um, and just really happy to be a part of that. Man, if <laughs> I hope I didn't venture too off there. <laughs> no, no, it feels so good to be right. Because uh, I said that that's a good way to end. And that was, that was, a, that was a great answer. Beautiful. Um, you just encapsulated, you encapsulated so many of the things that I feel, uh, and hold near and dear to my heart for aspirations, uh, that I have and what I want to achieve. And you took a, a similar trajectory toward the profession as myself, you know, where I was That's in a band. Wrong so well. <laughs> that is true, man. That's true from the get go. I wasn't as good as a musician as you were though. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, musicians very loosely based. Uh, I'm a vocalist. Uh, I really wish I had learned an instrument. Uh, I, you know, I put a soul focus into being able to sing and and or scream, however you want to look at it. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, man, I feel like I honestly felt like I'm glad that I'm with you. I'm glad that I took that adventure, and it, I got to live out my dream for seven years. Yeah. As a kid, you know, a teaching wasn't on my radar. I'll, I'll be real. And I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be. And then I, the first cassette I ever got was a Metallica, the Black Album. And I remember <laughs> yeah. ever since I heard that, I, I wore the tape out till it broke. Um, nice. I was a big fan, man. And I always wanted to be that front man. I wanted to command a crowd. I wanted to stand there in front yeah. of people and have them do what I say. Clap your hands. Let me see your hands in the air. Give me the fucking horns. <laughs> Woo! And I got that. And you get to do that now. Yeah. Yeah. And you still get to do it in the classroom. That is yeah, true. Let me see those hands. Let me see those pencils. All right. Hold, Show me the horns. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't put your hands up now, you all get used. <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah, man, I, I feel you on so many levels, and I, I think it's been absolutely great to get a chance to sit down with you and catch up. And uh, I hope you and your family are staying safe through all this. And I hope that um, once all this, you know, makes its way, runs its course, hopefully that uh, maybe me and you could get together and do some dinner, something like that. And uh, absolutely, I would love that. But yeah, dude, stay beautiful. I love the fact that uh, you're so passionate about this. this is, you're exactly what we need. And I hope that uh, this really uh, enlightens a couple of those misconceptions and really you know, helps people understand the plights and the work that we put in for their kids. Quick before we go. Absolutely. Separating, separating the educator from the individual, uh, I think, is, is almost impossible. And I think it has a lot to do with what you and I have already talked about a lot being the entertainer, being the commander of the room, um, but also being a part of the change and being part of the society. We can't turn it off. And sometimes I worry that it gets annoying out there because it's like, gosh, John, uh, stop talking about education. We get it. 
you're a teacher and, and you are, but can you just not be one for five minutes and sit down at the table and play this board game with us <laughs> and stop telling stories about kids picking their nose and stuff? Um, <clears throat> that's putting it lightly. But it's almost like, no, at the same time, because that's who you are. You've spent that entire life of that self journey and discovery to become that. And you're going to be that every day of your life now. And I apologize. I don't need mean to open this all back up. We were closing and, and um, <laughs> getting ready to go. And I'm all like, yeah, let's talk more about this and stuff. No. So awesome. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoyed talking about it. Just demonstrate your passion, man. It's all good. Yeah. It's great. And uh, yeah, on that note, take it easy, buddy. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm super glad I had you and appreciate you coming on, man. You too. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. Bye. <laughs> Bye.